Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and uh, Eric, uh, I've been doing a fair bit of reading lately and uh, the other day I came across an article in Science Magazine in which a uh, medieval historian determined that the single worst year to be alive was, drumroll please, the year 536. Hmm. Uh, There were various reasons for this. You know, a mysterious fog apparently plunged Europe and the Middle East and parts of Asia into darkness, day and night, for 18 months. And then shortly after that, the bubonic plague struck, wiping out one-third to one-half of the population of the Eastern Roman Empire and hastening its collapse, sending Europe apparently into economic stagnation for a century. Hmm. No, it's all terrible stuff. Anyway, but I thought, well, and then I looked at the uh, the byline there and the dateline, and it was written in 2018. And uh, rumor has it, rumor that, it should be pointed out, I have started, that the historian uh, in question has actually now renounced his work, burned all his notebooks, and agreed to start at the beginning, producing a new ranking system in which 536 is now the second worst year. There you go. Well, yeah, you know, but uh, as I've said a a time or two, uh, depending on what happens in November, it's possible that we'll spend 2021 looking back wistfully on 2020, saying, uh, you know, last year wasn't so bad. Um, And for me personally, 2020 hasn't been that bad. Uh, I'm I'm not prepared to say it's worse than 536, uh, unless my kid's summer camp ends up canceled, uh, which, uh, I sh- which I should know for sure if it's on or off by the time we record next week. That's the okay. make or break factor for me. If, if they have no overnight camp and the entire summer becomes one endless slog to keep them busy in ways that do not involve my son spending 12 hours a day playing Fortnite, then 2020 tops 536 in my view. Uh, so I'll, I'll get back to you in a week with a, a final ruling on this 2020 versus 536 debate. So, so you are the human embodiment of that meme of that dog sitting there drinking his cup of coffee while everything around him is on fire going, <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> Pretty much. You, you say that, but I know you're kind of in the same boat. Yeah, well, yeah. That's <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I hate to bring it up because I'm sure a lot of people listening are far from fine. So I, I don't want to rub it in their faces, but yeah, this, uh, the things that are going on, they bother me in a, in a sort of outside my body, uh, worried about the general condition of the world sort of way. But as far as affecting my day to day, yeah, whatever I'm rolling. I, I just occurred to me that this, this is a Seinfeld episode, right? There's, there's George and Jerry, they're in his apartment. Kramer's come in and he's just like going on about how terrible the world is. Right. And everybody, you know, everybody's dying and, and there's riots in the streets. And George is like, eh, I got a raise. <laughs> right, there I'm you like, go. <laughs> one friend's up, one friend's down. I'm even Steven. <laughs> that's, that's exactly. All right, we, uh, we have plenty of other things fortunately, to talk about uh, this week on the podcast, including real-life fights that we watched. Fights that we were expecting to watch but got called off, and fights that we will be watching this week, uh, assuming they don't also get called off. Uh, One fight we know we'll be watching this week, because it actually happened eight and a half years ago at Boardwalk Hall in Atlantic City, is the Super 6 tournament final between Andre Ward and Carl Froch which Showtime is replaying this Friday at 10 p.m., uh, concluding two weeks of looking back on that highly ambitious tournament. And that is where we will start the podcast. We will peak early and go downhill from there because we are going to begin by bringing on this week's guest. Uh, joining us right now, one of the men in that final. We are delighted to be able to welcome a former super middleweight titleist and our boxing analyst with Sky Sports, the one and only Carl the Cobra Frotch. Carl, thank you so much for joining us on the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, actually. No, it is a real pleasure to have you. And, and look, um, one of the things we've been doing uh, at the beginning of every interview over the last several months is asking people you know, how they're doing you know, in, in these very strange times. But we'll make it a bit of a two-part question for you, if that's all right, which was, first of all, how has your day-to-day life been in boxing retirement generally? Um, before all the COVID stuff, and and how are you doing now under these these unusual circumstances? Because the UK has been under a lot of lockdown for a while. It has, yes. The whole world's kind of been a bit strange, hasn't it, with with, with COVID nineteen. 
um, the coronavirus, and um, I've got my uh, I've got my own opinion about the coronavirus, but I won't go into that because um, it's a bit of a there's a few conspiracy theories flying around, and you get you get accused of being a tinfoil hat wearer if oh, you go right. too deep. But you know, um, yeah, we're all affected by it. Whatever whatever's going off in the world, whatever's happening, whatever the the deep state and the elite are up to, we'll just say that whatever they're up to, we're all on lockdown and we can't go anywhere right. and we can't do anything. Um, we can actually play a bit of golf now, which is good because I get out with my son Rocco, um, who plays plays better than me anyway. Um, but I've been I've been coping with life after boxing quite well. I, I was lucky enough to, to to sort of go straight into a role on Sky Sports as a commentator and an analyst, um, stroke pundit, and I get to go to all the big fights, watch all the top shows, what are on Sky, and I've been I've been to America a few times actually. I mean, when I started, we're talking as far back as Mayweather, Pacquiao, and um, you know, Canelo Alvarez was, was my last one against um, Daniel Jacobs. I mean, some great fights I've been involved in. And when our very own Anthony Joshua took on Vladimir Klitschko at Wembley Stadium, when he broke my record, he was 90,000 right. there. I boxed in front of 80, but he, he beat the record and boxed in front of 90,000. But for me to sit there ringside and be able to look around and take in the atmosphere and be involved in it all, it was amazing. I mean, I, I didn't really take in the atmosphere when I boxed at Wembley Stadium in the outside venue because I was so focused and so tunnel visioned in the moment. And when I look back and see all the show reels and the highlight knockouts and look at the crowd, I'm a, I'm a little bit sort of like taken back by it. Like, did I really do that? Was that me? Did right. that happen? Right. When I watched live Anthony Joshua against Vladimir Klitschko, was that, which was actually a great fight as well because um, they both went down in that fight. And then um, we got the win. AJ AJ lifted the belt at the end of the end of the contest. It was a great fight. I was able to sort of be involved in the fight myself, sit ringside, enjoy it all, but on the safe side of the ropes. And uh, that's where I'm going to stay. And and that's what's kept me out of the the ring. I think watching how hard these guys fight and the fitness. And I know what what it takes, but it almost feels like another lifetime ago when I mm. used to be this brutal fighting machine. So there's no danger of me coming back. And I think that. The fact that I've got the job I've got with Sky and I'm, I'm close to the action is one of the reasons why I've not gone back into the ring because it's mm. crossed my mind a few times, actually, to box again. But when I really think about it seriously and, and actually analyse what it takes to get back in the ring and the 12-week training camp and the sparring, et cetera, et cetera, and the diet, um, no, it, it only lasts about a week my, my <laughs> camps I get, I get back into fitness training for a week and think what am I doing I'm 42 years old now and uh, to answer your other question it's winter and you can now get almost anything you need for the coldest months of the year delivered with Uber Eats what do we mean by almost well you can't get a ski slope delivered but you can get dish soap delivered sunshine that's a no but a bottle of wine that's a yes a snow angel sorry no but angel hair pasta Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol and select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. Other than boxing and being outside of boxing, being at home now under lockdown, it's very strange, very unusual, but it's, it's kind of becoming normal now. Mm. Um, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with homeschooling. I've got, I've got a 10-year-old woman. My boy Rocco turns 10 at the end of June, end of this month. I've got a seven-year-old daughter, Natalia, and I've got a four-year-old daughter, Penelope. So the three of them at home with me and my wife, Rachel, trying to school them and trying to teach them with the, with the daily emails that we get from the school, it's really, really challenging, really tough. I'm like, I'm asking Siri every five minutes what <laughs> things on maths and <laughs> equations and fractions and trying to work out what superlatives are, what's a, what's a pronoun and a vowel and like all these old English stuff coming back to me that I'm sure, I'm sure I know the answers they are in there somewhere, but they've been filed away like 40 years ago, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, I really do want things to turn back to normal or get back to as close as what normal will be as soon as possible. I think it's getting to the point now where not just me, but just talking to my brother and my friends and everybody, my parents, everybody's had enough now. This is, mm. this is about enough now. Let's, let's get back to normal, please. Let's just get right. on with it. Right. Yeah, having to homeschool your kids uh, is probably the one thing that could almost maybe drive you back into boxing. Uh, that, you know, <laughs> exactly. You know what? <laughs> hey, why, do you, why do you think I, I, I'm agreeing to do every podcast? Anytime, like, <laughs> it's a great excuse to sit in my office and just relax and just chat away without being um, without being nagged. That she could probably hear me, so I've got to be careful what I say. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were talking about wanting to uh, to get back to, to to normal, and so certainly going back a, a few years back when uh, things. Uh, 
were, were a little more normal. That Super Six tournament that uh, Kieran mentioned at the top that Showtime uh, has been replaying. Uh, they showed uh, your semifinal win over Glenn Johnson uh, and uh, coming up your, your fight with Andre Ward. What are your most enduring memories of that tournament? And how important was the Super Six ultimately in establishing your legacy, Carl? The Super Six was was really important in establishing my legacy. It really was because I, I was able to fight back to back top level fighters for world titles, win or lose. I mean, I won the first one against Andre Durrell, but that was that was a tough fight, very close, very talented young man, Andre Durrell. I'm not sure he's quite got the right mindset. He's not mm. quite got that that instinct and that that um, I don't know that selfish and that tenacity that you need when you're fighting. He, he talks a good one. He, he makes all the right noises. He's very athletic. He's got fast hands. He's really, really skillful. I believe he medaled in the Olympics. But when it came down down to fighting me in Nottingham, my hometown, he was kind of on a bit of a run and hold kind of mission and trying to survival mode and trying to trying to steal the title off me. So I think because I pushed the fight and made it happen and I, I, I pushed him around a bit and ragdolled him and roughed him up a bit, I think that was the difference between winning and losing, to be honest, because neither of us really landed many shots. But that's that's that fight, and that was my first win in the Super Six. But before the Super Six, obviously, I beat Jean Pascal for the for the vacant WBC title. Then my first defence was over in America in the Foxwoods Resort and Casino in, in in Connecticut, and that was an amazing fight for me because I nearly lost my world title in my very first defence. Went over to America, fought the former undisputed middleweight champion Jermaine Taylor. You obviously know who he is. And um, nearly threw it all away, and I managed to I managed to snatch the victory from jaws of defeat in the final in the dying seconds of the last rounds and force the stoppage. And I think if I didn't get that stoppage and get that win and retain my belt, I would have never been invited into the Super Six. I, I don't think mm-hmm. I'd have. Jermaine Taylor got invited in, even though he lost mm-hmm. to me. But he was a top fighter with great pedigree and great credentials. I think if I'd have lost that, I don't know where I would have gone and how my career would have unfolded because I'd have come back to England with no WBC title, defeated with no television contract either because when I became a world champion, we, we went into this massive financial crash in 2008 and a lot of the TV broadcasters like ITV and BBC had pulled out of sport, their terrestrial television channels in Britain. So I was relying on Sky Sports who had kind of their own their own favourite fighters at the time. They had Ricky Hatton and, and they had a few other fighters and there was no room at the end for Carl Cobra Froch, especially with no world title. So... After beating Jermaine Taylor and getting asked to go into the Super 6 World Boxing Classic uh, by Showtime, it was almost like a no-brainer for me. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a good contract. It was, it was, um, was a seven-figure contract, so it was big money for me. I mean, I never, I never looked at money when I was fighting. I always fought for the pure love of the sport and I fought for the belts. I saw this contract and thought, wow, I'm, I'm world champion and I'm actually going to get paid some decent money here. Um, Looking back, actually, <laughs> the fights I had back-to-back, I earned my bloody money, let me tell you. But <laughs> it was a great contract in a bad climate for a world champion from England. So I took it and um, I went into it really quite naive, quite naively. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mikel Kessler, Andre Ward, um, Glenkov Johnson, he replaced um, Alan Green, who I think replaced Jermaine Taylor. Right. Um, Andre Durrell, what a hard fight. I mean... I lost two fights out of the out of the tournament. I lost to Mikel Kessler and I eventually lost to Andre Ward in the final. But, you know, to have five fights and two losses, it feels like a bad run. But actually, th- them them five fights were just, they were so amazing. that The loss to Kessler was really close as well. And I think the fact that it was in Denmark and not in Britain maybe tipped it his way. But I'm throwing my hands up. I think I got beat fair and square by the better man on the night. I didn't feel like I'd won. But watching it back, it was a very close, hard-fought contest. But... Um, on fast forward in onto the final of the Super Six, which I'm sure you want to talk about because I think you're showing that fight. I met Andre Ward, who was who um, was very, very difficult, very awkward to say the least. But um, I'll let you speak now. I've, in, I've introduced <laughs> how the Super Six did my career and did so much for my career. And I'm so grateful for that when I look back, and I look back with great pride. But on from the Super Six, I then kind of had another phase in my career here in England and. Um, I became world champion again by beating Lucian Butte and then went on to the George Groves one and then two at Wembley Stadium. So, well, I'm sure you just want to talk about the um, the American stuff and, and, and my, my nemesis, Andre Ward. <laughs> we, we will get on to, to, to some of that other stuff, actually, as well. But, but yeah, that, that final, uh, you know, it, it turned out to be pretty close. You came through pretty strongly in, in the end, and, and especially mm. when you look at 
you know, the career that Andre wound up at, you look at like two of the scorecards there, I think were 15, 13 for him. Yeah. Like you were, you were a round away from making it a majority draw. Do you look back on that and think, ah, fair enough, fair result, the better man won? Or do you think, damn, I should have just done something a little bit different there and I could have had him and, and as good as things were, things might have been even better. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. If I'm totally honest with myself, I thought the 115, 113 scorecards were quite flattering to me. Hmm. I think there was. On the night, I thought I'd lost. And the other score that was quite wide, if I'm totally totally honest, because I'm not one of these guys that says, I had to beat him and I had to beat him and that was a robbery and whatever. I'm just totally honest. I think 115, 113 was, was doing me a favour. But I do look back at that and think to myself, the judges, the judges were liking something, what they saw in my style, or they wasn't liking something in Andre Ward's style. They wasn't right. liking probably the way he was holding, he was ducking low, he uses his head a lot. So it, had I had worked a bit earlier in round one and round two, because I finished strong around 10, 11 and 12, yeah. Andre Ward was looking up at the clock, I was finishing strong and I felt like I got my second wind. Uh, but it, it was a nervous start for me. I was a bit unsure. I knew I, I, knew I was going to struggle to catch Ward. I knew he was quick and very skillful and awkward. And I was, you know, I'd been in Atlantic City before. I was I boxed Glenn Johnson like three months before that. I spent two months flagging yellow cabs down in, in Manhattan, in New York, to go to the Gleason's gym. And there's a couple of other gyms out there. I went to Trinity Gym, I believe. And um, the sparring partners out there and the people... You know, the lads, I was sparring Peter Quillen, Kid Chocolate. He was trying to knock me out every single time I sparred with him, which I didn't mind. And there was a couple of other sparring partners that they get in there and they kind of, they've got a point to prove. So the sparring right. was tough, but maybe it was a little bit too tough because there was times when I was having a bit of gym wars and I was drained. So I weighed in. I weighed in fight week on the, on the ward fight because it was very humid and hot in, um, in, in New York on that second fight. Hang on, let me think about this. No, I was very light in the first. In fact, I was light in the first and second fight, but I was lighter for the actual um, Glenkov Johnson fight, actually. So I was weighing 164 pounds fight week, which is like right. four pounds. On that. I could have probably yeah. made middleweight. I could have probably made 160. But, you know, I'm a super middleweight. I'm big and strong at the weight. But when I, when I finally fought Andre Ward back at the Broadwalk Empire in Atlantic City, I was absolutely bored stiff. With a, I'd been back to New York again, back to Manhattan, doing the same thing. It was like Groundhog Day. And mm. I was thinking, at the end of this, I've got Andre Ward waiting for me. And he's anybody's nightmare. So <laughs> I had a really bad attitude. I was unprofessional. And I didn't really get in the ring with any mean intentions. And I kind of didn't believe in myself either. Um, that's probably because Andre Ward is so, so good at winning and so awkward. Um, I kind of got in the ring a little bit negative. So a faster start for me, if I'd have come out of the blocks like I did when I fought Jean Pascal, I'm going to win this world title. I'm in my hometown. Let's really stamp my authority early on. I do feel that I could have won round one and maybe round two. And then that one round, majority yeah. draw, you know, I'd have took that. I'd have took that, <laughs> threw my hands up and said, you know what? It'd have been one of them results where the guy who really lost would have been happy with the draw. <laughs> And the, right, and the right. guy who really won would have gone away feeling really, really <laughs> upset. And I'm being polite. So I can't look back and moan because on from Andre Ward, I had a fantastic finish to my career. Yeah. And, and had it not been for that loss against Andre Ward, maybe I wouldn't have got that fuel right. and that fire and that mindset to, to go and do what I did to Lucian Butte. So I'm, I'm a big believer in things happen for a reason. And I'm safe and well. And I've got out the other end with my health. So... You know, I've got a lot to look back on and be happy and proud about. And Andre Ward, let's be honest, he went on to become a light heavyweight champion and he's unbeaten, mm -hmm. but he will put a glass eye to sleep any day of the week <laughs> when he fights. I've never rewatched any of his fights. I fast-forwarded when he fought Kovalev. I, I was in disbelief when he headbutted Kessler 40 times and cut above, his both eye, above and below both eyes. And when he fought me, he was ducking low and holding, using his head. And the television companies must think to themselves, Wow, this guy's this guy's unbeatable. He's a world champion. Is is just we can't sell him. We can't. It doesn't do numbers. So I think that's why his career ended early. To be honest, I just don't think it made sense putting Andre Ward on pay per view because 
nobody was interested. So there you go. I've had I've had my little rant there, and um, <laughs> I've give I've given Andre Ward a little bit of stick. But one thing he does know how to do is win, and he retired undefeated. Yep. So fair play to him for that. But this is an entertainment business, and in professional boxing, we have to entertain. Are you not entertained? You have to entertain the crowd because they're paying punters. So he didn't tick that box, but he can he can retire. The son of God can retire knowing that he's unbeaten and he beat the Cobra. And I am over it. I'm very much over it. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're admitting that the the score card, the close scorecards were maybe a little too close. That's uh, refreshingly honest coming from a from a fighter and does suggest uh, that that you're over it. Uh, but you you know you you talked about uh, that that Andre Ward wasn't necessarily didn't necessarily get it done from an entertainment perspective. A big thing about being an entertainment entertaining fighter is taking on the toughest possible opposition time and again. And you've sort of touched on this already, but I, I wrote at the time that the quality of opposition you faced from 2008 until the end of your career was unparalleled in the sport. Um, I'm, I'm going to kiss your ass for a, for a minute here. So, so get comfortable, Carl. Um, of your final 12 fights, 11 were against championship level opponents, the lone exception being Yusuf Mack. Otherwise, all in a row, it was Pascal, Taylor, Durrell, Kessler, Abraham, Johnson, Ward, Boutte, Kessler again, and George Groves twice. Uh, and, you know, you talked about going five and two over one stretch. You actually went 10 and two over that whole stretch. Do you feel like you got proper credit at the time for that insane gauntlet that you ran? Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Towards the end, I got the credit because I ended up on... on Sky Television on pay-per-view. And when I say I got the credit, you don't really get massive credit on Sky Sports Boxing because mm. it's a subscription channel and it's pay-per-view as well. So I think we did we did about 800,000 buys. So mm. I got paid well and I felt right. like I, I felt like, I'd, you know, that it's nice when the digits crack up in the bank and you're thinking I'm going to retire soon and I've got, I've got a nice chunk of money to retire with because I've worked my whole life. But in terms of recognition and credit, when I became world champion against um, Jean Pascal, in front of my home crowd on, on ITV, which is a terrestrial television channel, in front of millions of viewers, I thought, this is going to get big now. This is going to be really big. And immediately after that, we had the 2008 financial crash. I mean, it was, it was the end of 2008 into 2009. And ITV pulled out of boxing. They, they, they wasn't going to show it anymore. Sky Sports were like, oh, we've not shown much of Froch winning this title. So that's why I went and fought Jermaine Taylor in America. So yeah. that fight was shown delayed the next day on a Sunday afternoon on terrestrial television, but there was adverts between every single round. So hmm. it, it probably lasted, the fight was probably on for an hour and a half. <laughs> people would have been like, people that were tuned in probably tuned out and turned it off. So it never got seen. So if you look at that fight now and the value of that, what that fight would have been, a, a British world champion making his first defense on American soil against Jermaine Taylor. I mean, Jermaine Taylor was probably just past his best when he fought me. But, you know, he was up at super middleweight. He'd just, just beaten Jeff Lacey. And he, he was still a force. He was a decent fighter. Yeah. Fast hands, very skillful. I mean, I don't get dropped regularly. He dropped me in round three and he gave me a hell of a fight. And, you know, he went out on his shield in that last round. He could have held on. He could have grabbed yeah. it. He could have... You talk about my, my scorecard being close for Andre Ward. Well, well, Jermaine Taylor could have held on and grabbed hold mm. of me for 10 seconds. And he'd have probably got the win, you know. And, you know, he did an interview a couple of months after that. And he said, listen, I can't win like that. I can't go out like that. So that's my kind of man who I've got so much right. respect for, you know, to, right. to, to say that. So, you know, the recognition came in the end. And I boxed at the National Stadium, Wembley Stadium. There was lots of people. There were 80,000. I've said it a few times. I told Floyd Mayweather as well when I was in America. And that, that kind of went viral. But <laughs> I'm really proud that we filled the arena, the stadium with 80,000. And I, I, I knocked out my... Um, my grudge match opponent in a rematch, George Groves. I mean, it was a massive fight, massive grudge match. It captured the public's imagination. Yep. It was on Sky Sports pay-per-view, so I was getting paid decent money. And I rendered him unconscious, you know, before the final bow. And it was a great win. 
And it was such a great way to bow out on my career. I just thought to myself, you know what? It's not going to get any better than this. This is like my Rocky Balboa moment when he defeats Apollo Creed. And that's why I called it a day. Yeah, because I think, if I recall correctly, was there not also some talk about you maybe having like a big Vegas fight against Chavez or something like that? Yes, and yes, was at least that. talk about that. And I don't know how far yeah. advanced that was. But yeah, was that it? Was that a case of I think people were a bit surprised when you stepped away? And was that a case of you just going, yep, that's it. That's as good as I've gotten. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, you talked earlier about, you know, not wanting to you know, go through the effort of, of training camps and that. But now that you are ringside with Sky, I wonder if, if there is a moment when you think about coming back, is it that moment when the lights come down and the music starts and you see people do that ring walk and get into the ring? Do you ever think, is that the moment, if you do ever think about it, you think, oh, man, I do kind of miss it. It is, yeah, yeah. You set the scene well there when I'm sitting ringside and the, 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 the music comes on, the lights dim, and then the, the pyrotechnics start going off the lasers or the flames or whatever it is that's, that's razzmatazzing the ring entrance. Um, but, you know... I'm, I'm realistic with myself and I'm honest with myself. And my, my, two, my two last camps, well, my, my last three fights, Mikel Kessler rematch, which I won. And it was a tough fight that was. I got caught in round 11 and my legs went and I managed to recover quick and then put some shots together. And then it was a great last round. I thought I was going to stop him, but I didn't quite stop him. But it was a really fitting ending for, for Mikel Kessler because him and I are very good friends and very close. I had him on my podcast last week, Frotch on Fighting. You should give it a listen. There you go. So, um, it was on that. So it was great. And, um, you know, it's one apiece. He beat me. I beat him. We're both friends. We're both warriors. We both fight properly. We don't hang around and stop holding and headbutting and, and kissing the floor and that. We, we stand in front of each other and, and entertain the crowd. But that training camp for that fight was tough. You know, my elbows are sore. I've had cortisone injections in my elbow. My Achilles tendon was sore when I was running. My lower back was playing up. I couldn't extend my left arm when I missed with a shot or a jab. The pain was horrific. So after the Kessler fight, I was thinking, I beat this guy in a rematch. And that was on Sky Pay-Per-View. So I got paid. And I was thinking, you know what? I'm 35 years old. Hmm. Would, it, would that do me? I think that will do me. I'm, I'm kind of thinking to myself, I'll still fight, but it's got to be special. So when the George Groves fight came up, I was like, George Groves, he's my old sparring partner. He's not good enough to go in the ring with me. Let me go to Vegas. Let me have a rematch with Ward or let me fight okay. Chavez Jr. Let me get something big and something different. So Eddie Hearn said George Groves mandatory for the IBF. And I was like, I'm not fighting George Groves. It's like an easy fight. As soon as I hit him on the chin, I'll knock him out because I've, I've done him in sparring a couple of times. And I just, I just thought as soon as I hit him with them little 10-ounce gloves on, it's fight over. So I didn't train for the first fight. I was doing a dance show with my wife on, on television okay. called Stepping Out. And I was prancing around doing the romba and the, um, the bangra. And I think I did a bit of, what else did I do? The cha-cha-cha. And I should have been in training camp. So when I pulled out of that, that um, dance competition, there was like six weeks of camp left to go. So I went up to Sheffield and really got stuck in and knuckled down. But it was too late, to be honest. Six weeks isn't long enough to train. I need 12 weeks. So I got into the ring with George Groves in Manchester on fight night, thinking to myself, all I've got to do is hit him on the chin. And this fight's going to be over. As soon as I land that shot on the chin, he's going to be out cold. He's got to be. I've knocked him out in sparring with big 16-ounce gloves on and head guards. So I went into the ring, cold, not warmed up, not really that fit, but I'm naturally fit anyway, naturally tough. I do the weight well. So I was fit enough, but I wasn't firing on all cylinders. You know, my, my, my tools were not sharp at all. Um, trying to hit him with his right hand and trying to load up and open him up and smack him in the face with a heavy knockout blow. It is absolutely impossible when you've missed sparring, you've missed your runs, you're not sharp, your timing's gone. And I was walking into every single shot from round one right through to round six. The only reason he got tired and I ended up beating him is because he tired himself out beating me up. He basically hit me with everything he could mm. for six rounds because I'm naturally tough and strong. I fought through it and then I started to turn it round and then we had that controversial stoppage. Howard Foster, the referee, jumped in a couple of seconds, probably too early, by right. my own admission. If I'm honest, I think George Groves was gone and I'd hit him with some nice shots. But let the fight carry on. Come on, let's see the finish. We want to see the finish. We, we love the sport. We want to see someone get knocked out. As barbaric and as brutal as it is, that's what we want to see. So, you know, the crowd went absolutely mental and that created this controversial rematch and it just captured the public's imagination. So 
I didn't want to fight. After I forgot what my tray, what I was talking about. Here. I'm talking about retiring. So <laughs> I didn't really want to fight again after the Kessler fight. Then I find myself in a match with this, with this kid from, that I used to spar with. And it was, it was an absolute horrible night for me. I got beat mm-hmm. up for six rounds. Then I managed to turn it around and get the stoppage, controversially as it was. So I kind of then had to fight again. I had to have the rematch. There was no way I couldn't fight George Groves again in a rematch. My pride would have not allowed me to, to not fight him. And then the press were behind it so much, the television. And then when Eddie Hearn, my promoter, started talking about Wembley Stadium, I was like, look, they are really, wow, I've got to do this. So then I knuckled down, I had a proper training camp, and I did the job. But um, trust me, that first Kester, second Kester fight, I was kind of thinking about retirement. I didn't want the George Groves fight. I got beat up quite badly before I forced a stoppage. I thought, that's the end of me, forget it. But because the rematch gathered so much momentum, I had to take the rematch. And that training camp for the, for the George Groves rematch at Wembley Stadium in front of 80,000 people, to get that in there again, <laughs> that, was, that was in my head, every single run I did every morning in pain, every sparring session I did with Tony Bellew trying to kill me and, and Chris Eubank Jr. non-stop in front of me and, and, and all the sparring and training and dieting, because I had to diet towards the end of my career. When I got to 36 years old, I actually tried to, I had to take a bit of weight off because I'm getting older, I'm getting a bit, I'm getting a bit thicker around the midsection and I'm, I'm holding a bit of weight. I'm naturally skinny anyway, but it was hard. It was very, very hard. So I got through the training camp knowing and telling myself, this is the last time you're going to do this. Get mm-hmm. out of bed in mm-hmm. the morning, go mm-hmm. to the sparring, don't cut corners, don't eat that, don't eat that dessert, don't eat that cheesecake. <laughs> Just make sure you do everything right and get into that ring as best as you can be for 37 years old. Right. and just win this fight just win this fight by any means necessary I was actually 36 but I was 37 a month later after that fight so that's why when I retired it was quite an easy decision but I still had potential fights made I still had glimmers of shall I come back shall I not you know we talked about the Chavez Jr. fight and for me that for me without being disrespectful that felt like an easy fight for me that felt like you know what I don't think this guy's really taking the sport seriously like his old yeah. man used to there's, yeah. there's stories about him smoking a bit of weed and I just think he doesn't live the life. Has he got what it takes to get in there with somebody like me when I'm motivated? I don't think so. But he lost to a guy called Fonfara. Me and Eddie Hearn, we couldn't do a deal. And I didn't really want to be trained. I, I, was, I did a few runs and I went in the gym a few times. And I tell you, the desire was totally gone. I was trying to force it out of myself. And I thought, you know what? What am I doing? I've made my money. I've got four world titles. I've avenged one loss. I'm not going to beat Andre Ward in a rematch, really. It's going to mm. be difficult. He's not going to come to Nottingham. He said he wasn't going to come to Nottingham. So where else could I go? If I was going to hang around any longer, you've got the next generation coming through, like Callum Smith and the, the guys that are fighting now. And I just think to myself, you can't beat the clock. you know. And youth, youth will always beat an older man. Oh, Hopkins managed to do it for years. And he managed to, he managed to nick, uh, nick a right few quid at the end of his career. And he's, he's, a, he's a living legend, but he's a one-off specimen of a man. And he's, he's just what he did was really, really fantastic. I think if I'd have had the right mind, I think I could have gone on for two more fights, maybe. Mm. Because I do the weight quite easy. I'm naturally strong and fit. I'm half Polish. And I think that's, I've got the genetics to do the weight and, and keep the strength. But the desire was well and truly gone. And um, yeah, that's why I decided to just totally leave it there. Funny that you that you mentioned uh, Bernard Hopkins because uh, talking to you now uh, you you have what we in the American boxing media uh, call uh, Bernard Hopkins disease, which is you'll answer a question and meander all over the place and go in all these interesting directions and then bring it back at the end. So it's it might be spending a lifetime getting punched in the head. No, but just get, just get in there. But when I deviate good. from from the plan, I, I, I do I do like to think I add some nice additions for you. Absolutely, yeah, you work your way back. We've run out of time, aren't you? We've run out of time now. We're we're we're, oh, clo- we're we're close. The clock is running down, but we have one more question. I, I want to finish with a question about what's going on in boxing right now. The the sport is easing its way back with fights in empty arenas, and it might just be that way for for a little while. If you were still an active fighter, how would you feel about fighting in studio settings without fans? And, and do you expect you'd be willing to take a pay reduction in order to stay active if that's what it took? You know what, if I was on my, if I was on my way up and, and fighting for a, a world title eliminator and trying to build, build my career, then I'd have fought and took a pay cut. I never looked at what I was earning early, in my, early on in my career, as, as, as stupid and as naive as it was. 
I didn't know what I was going to earn when I fought for my first WBC world title. And it was only just six figures, by the way. I never got paid. And then I never got paid well. And then my my first defense against Jermaine Taylor, that wasn't big money because I was world champion. I had the green and gold belt. Mike Tyson had that belt. Muhammad Ali had that belt. I was just amazed that I was world champion. Um, And it wasn't until later on in my career when I went into the Super 6 and I got on Sky Box Office when I started thinking, right, I need to start earning some money because I've got a life after boxing. But I've always invested in real estate. I've got lots of properties, big portfolio. So, you know, I set that up from from the middle part of my career. So I've always been quite – I did a business and finance um, course at college in Nottingham, and that kind of gave me the business acumen to to invest wisely rather than than just spend the money as you earn it because that's very short-lived and doesn't work. So – Sorry, I'm doing that thing again where I, I go off on a tangent <laughs> in a different direction. What, what was your question? <laughs> About the, if, if, you were, if you were still fighting the, the whole empty arena thing. Uh, well, that was you know, it, yeah. I boxed in front of empty arenas before as an amateur. So mm-hmm. I would have took a pay cut early on because I never looked at how much I was earning. But late on, if I was world champion, I'm on pay-per-view and I'm thinking how much gate we've got, what's the gate, 20,000. Hang on a minute, this ain't fair. Why am I taking a pay cut? It would, it would disgruntle you or it should mm. disgruntle a prize fighter because that's why we're fighting for money. Mm. But you've got to look at it for what it is. We're in this situation. We're all in it together. And I'm still going to get paid for doing something that I love. And if you're boxing, you should love it because if you don't love it, you're going to get hurt. Um, and I know what it's like. So I would have took a pay cut to box to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and how would I have performed? To be honest, I like boxing in front of big crowds. And I think it lifts your spirit and it lifts your energy and makes you feel like you've got an extra couple of rounds in the tank. And when it gets hard and when you get caught and you, you're feeling dazed, when you've got the crowd cheering or, or booing or humming and ahhing, whether they're for you or against you, it does something for you. You can feel that natural energy, whether it's electromagnetic frequency. We're not going to talk about 5G, but something's in the air when there's a massive crowd and a big buzz. The atmosphere lifts your spirit and lifts that, that attitude and that mentality. And it gives you that extra level. It really does. So... I wouldn't have been happy fighting for world titles in front of an empty arena. No chance. Um, I don't mind if I'm building up to get there, but when I'm, mm-hmm. when I'm on top, when I'm on the top, like Anthony Joshua, I think would be dangerous. If Anthony Joshua fought, um, who's he fighting next? He's fighting P- Kubrick Pulev in his next yeah. fight. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's dangerous if Anthony Joshua fights in front of no crowd hmm. because he could turn up sparring session mentality. He's going to get a tough, rugged workhorse in Pulev who's not that special, but he's tough. And he'll come and have a right go. You know, AJ probably needs that crowd behind him to lift mm-hmm. him and, and finish strong. And when I boxed as an amateur all over Europe and around the world in, in various multi-nations tournaments, I've been to many tournaments, many uh, events where you walk to the ring and you've literally got the referee, the three judges or four judges pushing the button and your team and their team in the corner, two or three men. And there's nobody there because you're literally just in an Olympic qualifying tournament or a European qualifier or just some some tournament that nobody's heard of. And it, it's tough. It feels like a sparring session. And sometimes when you're mm. sparring, you can't get up for it. Um, and if you're in a boxing match and you can't get up for it, a lot of the time the crowd picks you up and gets you going. But yeah, I don't like it. I don't think it's, I don't think it's ideal. And um, the sooner we get rid of this bloody <laughs> social distancing nonsense, and I think, I think the social distancing is nonsense. That's my opinion. I'm not going to say anything more about what's going off. But I spoke to doctors that said, listen, if a virus can travel two feet or two meters, it can travel, it can travel 20 meters. This two meter business, it's just, it's just pointless. And I don't agree with the masks either. I won't, I won't let my kid wear masks because you need your oxygen. You know? But that's all I'm going to say on, on, on that. It's, it's, well, it's, uh, it's, I was going to say, we're going to have to save the Carfrotch coronavirus podcast for later because we're literally running out of Zoom time, meeting time here. <laughs> yeah, we should do uh, another one, definitely. We should talk yeah. about the coronavirus. We should talk about 5G and we should also talk about flat earth. We should cover all, all elements. <laughs> Get it all in there <laughs> once, yeah. And, and, and we'll, we'll, touch, we'll touch on the fake moon landing as well. We <laughs> okay. That. okay. That is going to be for uh, episode two, part two of this podcast. Hey, listen, Carl, thank you very much for putting some time aside to join us. We really, really do appreciate it. We'd love to have you back again. And your podcast that people need to listen to, Fighting with Frotch, is that correct? Frotch on fighting. Frotch on fighting. On there fighting. you go. Which is much <laughs> better you. than fighting with Frotch. I wouldn't want to do that. But there you go. <laughs> Carl, no, thank you it, very guys. much. I really have. Thank you Pleasure. very much for joining us. We really appreciate Pleasure. it. Mate. All Thanks, the best, Carl. Take care. Same Take to you. Care guys. Take care.
All right. That was interesting. Uh, Carl, <laughs> Carl's a fun guy to talk to, and I, I think the listeners will find the interview entertaining. But we were kind of saved by the bell there. Uh, our, our Zoom call, the time limit really was running out, just as he was saying lots of things we don't agree with. I'm especially <laughs> not a fan of his views on mask wearing. Um, and, and I'm not sure if he brought all that up because he could see the same clock ticking down that we saw. And this was a case of like he didn't really want to discuss and debate those things, just wanted to drop a few conspiracy theories that he knew we wouldn't have time to rebut. Uh, but either way. I'm perfectly happy as the non-confrontational sort of guy that I am not to have the conversation go in that direction. Uh, but you know, until the end, it, it was a fun conversation, wouldn't you say? Yeah, uh, I, I did enjoy it. It's the um, it's the first time I've spoken to him at all, actually. Um, and, and he's you know clearly fond of his memories with Showtime and the Super 6. Uh, he gave us plenty of his time, mm. more time than we were necessarily looking for. But um, yeah, I, I think there's probably an element in there of, of sort of wanting to be provocative a little bit um perhaps without necessarily getting into it yeah i think professional athletes especially professional boxers tend to be absurdly competitive and they've, they've got to find something right uh to get the competitive juices going when they've retired apparently that includes uh trying to see if you can provoke conversations about the moon landings flat earth and covid conspiracies but there you go interesting you? anyway there. thank yeah. you zoom for your arbitrary 40 <laughs> minutes time limit really the clock was literally sitting down if you haven't done a zoom session like when you're getting to the end there's this big countdown clock basically right. it starts at 10 minutes to go or as carl calls it half a sentence and <laughs> <laughs> and then it just, you know, by the end, it's really flashing red. So, yeah, we were we got out there just in time. Indeed. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. Let's uh, talk about the fight cards that have taken place over the past week. Uh, but actually, before we drill down on any of the in-ring results, let's analyze this whole MGM Grand bubble setup and how it's working. Uh, we touched on this briefly last week with Steve Farhood talking about Michaela Mayer's fight getting canceled because of a false positive COVID test. And the plot thickened this week when the Thursday ESPN main event, Jose Pedraza versus Mikko Lepierre, got yanked because Lepierre's manager, Jose Taveras, tested positive. There are contact tracing protocols in place, and they require that because of the contact between Taveras and Lepierre, the fight couldn't go on. Everyone in that camp had to go into isolation. This has already sparked one rule change in Nevada. Instead of each fighter being allowed two trainers and a third person, such as a manager, that third person is now out. It's fighters and trainers only in the bubble. So, look, this is all very much an experiment and a work in progress. And if the idea is, when in doubt, shut it down and prevent spread of the virus, I 100% support that. Fights are going to get called off. Counting MMA, the pace seems to be that once every two or three cards, one fight is getting canceled. Um, I have major concerns about how the team sports are going to handle this reality, especially with COVID mm. numbers reaching new highs now in so many states. Uh, but for boxing, it seems somewhat manageable. And the word is that Pedraza Lapierre and the mayor fight are both being rescheduled for the same card on July 14th. It sucks for the fighter to, to peak for a fight and then have to re-peak again a month later. But it's not a total disaster like it would be in a team sport. I truly don't know how the NFL expects to have a season, although they insist they will. And I think if the NBA is going to make it work, it's starting to feel like it's not going to be in Orlando this summer. Um, right. But uh, back to boxing. I would say, all in all, the bubble is working so far, and we're learning valuable lessons every week. What do you say, Kieran? Satisfied with how Top Rank and the Nevada Commission are handling everything so far? Yeah, I mean, it seems from a distance that they're being very sensible and very cautious. Um, as you were saying, they basically are clearly erring on the side of caution. They're, they're finding their way through all of this as best they can. Uh, there is literally no blueprint for this. Um, and so far, it seems that they're catching the cases they need to catch. Like you said, it's really tough um, when you do get caught, especially like Michaela Mayer, who seems to have had some kind of false positive. Like she might have had antibodies because she was close to somebody who had the virus or something, it seems. But right. And, and that's really, it's, it's, like you said, it sucks to be, you know, in a position where you're peaking and especially after such a long time off and then you have to start over again. But like you said, at least it looks like top rank are wasting no time to reschedule them whenever possible. So, so that those, those camps aren't, aren't completely wasted. It's going to take trial and error. Mm -hmm. It just is, but I just don't know. There's just no other way about it, but it does strike me. 
from a distance that the way that they've gone about it, you know, create the bubble, have regular fights, not just so that you've got plenty of content, but that way they've got a system going and they can learn fast, right? And and, and get all the kinks sorted out. Um, you know, don't make those fights so big that you're risking any major fights. All of that just seems, you know, eminently sensible and a good way forward so yep. far, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, uh, the other element, though, with all of this, and, and Steve Farhood touched on this last week when we talked to him, but neither of us offered much of an opinion. Um, there's that no audience element. Um, you know, I got to say, for me, I found that it's made very little difference, if any. Um, you know, the the interesting thing has been the the commentators getting used to each other and we did talk about that a little bit last week and getting that that right um and they're they're, they're getting there very very rapidly but actually not having a crowd in the arena i don't know man. i've been ringside for so many undercards where nobody's there yet mm-hmm. um it's just a fact of life it, it it you know like like carl said um earlier and like joseph parker said the other week on the way up you're super used to it so it presumably isn't much of a distraction for the boxes I'm not finding it um, to be a distraction. I mean, if it were a big fight, you know, and Carl mentioned Anthony Joshua, I'm sure I'd notice. But to this point, not making a difference to me. How about you? Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I've been surprised at how little the lack of a crowd matters to me. Uh, Like, I I don't even really notice it most of the time. I'm focused on the action. I'm enjoying the fights. There are a handful of people at ringside making noise, plus you have the commentators, so there is some sound. It, it doesn't feel right. that weird. Every fight is basically Douglas Tyson now, where, where the crowd right. is eerily silent, and uh, to steal the famous Aaron Snow line, you could hear a rat pissing on cotton. Uh, but, uh, like, if pro wrestling is the most extreme example of something that looks and sounds ridiculous without a crowd... Boxing is pretty far on the other end of the spectrum, at least for these minor fights. Uh, I mean, let's be honest; these are these are club fights so far, for the most part. Uh, fights that very well might take place early in an undercard when crowds are just filing in under normal circumstances. So, uh, basically, echoing what you said, the question is: Will it seem weird if a major fight takes place under these conditions? Like. Uh, yeah, the, the the Joshua example that that you just brought up that that Frotch mentioned that might feel weird as a viewer right. seeing two giant men contesting a heavyweight title in an empty room. So um, we'll have to wait and see. But for now, so far, I think this is working just fine. Uh, we're, we're lucky as boxing podcasters. Our our sport is back, and along with MMA, golf, tennis. I think a steady schedule can continue now. Uh, you know, I, I, as I said, I'm not sure that that can be said about any of the team sports, but with boxing, this is all working out okay as far as I can tell. Right, right. All right, so let's get on to the actual fights that, that took place last week. Uh, when Pedraza Lapierre fell out as the main event of the Thursday card, it was replaced by undefeated 20-year-old lightweight prospect Gabriel Flores Jr., running his record to 18-0, six KOs, with a 10-round shutout win over Josec Ruiz. Uh, if you're the guy who bet $188,000 on Flores at the MGM wow. Sportsbook in order to win a little over $4,000, I guess this fight kept your attention. Uh, but for me, not having a small fortune on the line, not so much. Uh, Top Rank put on some good competitive fights last week. But this wasn't one of them. Any thoughts uh, on Flores and how blue chip he is after seeing uh, him in his first 10 rounder here? Mm, I don't think I'd seen him before. I don't know if you had. Um, Maybe I had. But if so, he probably didn't register very much with me. And if I wasn't watching him as a main event here to talk about it, I'm not sure he would have registered with me this time around anyway, uh, either. Um, uh, Look, he's a prospect. He's very young. He's like 20 years old. He's still, you know, got a a ways to go. But, uh, yeah, he was dominant, but he was up against the guy whose last opponent had 26 losses. So um, the standard of opposition wasn't great. I I don't know. Um, I'm I'm not, we'll see. He doesn't look like he's the kind of guy I want to get too invested in. I'm not generally fond of these wannabe Roy Jones, Floyd Mayweather types. You know, he was doing the Roy thing there for a while, wasn't he? The left hand really low, the mm-hmm. the body kind of forward. And then he was doing the Floyd when he's very bored in the 11th round of a 147-pound fight, just like constantly moving around somewhat for the sake of it. I don't know that he needed to move around as much as he did there. I'm, I'm not necessarily against 
boxes rather than brawlers per se. I, I like good quality boxes, but I don't know. I'm we'll we'll see. He's still very young. He looks like he might yet have to develop his full man strength. Uh, maybe you know he'll he'll develop a little bit, but. At the moment, he's certainly not somebody I'm going to put on my list of prospects to encourage people to watch. But we'll see. Right. Yeah. And and the one thing that we know for sure, I mean, most of it is all too soon to tell. But the one thing we can say with a lot of confidence is that he isn't a puncher. Uh, right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this fight with Ruiz didn't tell us much. He might have the skills to go far. But, uh, yeah, at the very least, he isn't one of those prospects that, oh, my God, you got to watch this guy because he scores spectacular knockouts. I don't think that's yeah. coming from uh, from. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. Um, that fight certainly went according to script. Um but several other bouts actually last week did not. Um, on that Thursday card, super middleweight Clay Collard, who came in with a record of 6-2-3, and three, spoiled the perfect 6-0 record of David Kaminsky winning a six-round split decision. That should not have been a split decision. Uh, in Tuesday's main event, uh, it was an upset by a majority decision. That also should not have been a majority decision. should really, it seems, have been unanimous. Uh, Magic Mike Planea dropping uh, favorite Joshua Greer in both the first and sixth rounds to ensure the surprise victory. Uh, and Greer totally upfront about it afterwards as well, which was, uh, which was very welcome. Uh, in the Tuesday co-feature, undefeated welterweight Giovanni Santian needed Again, a little help from the judges. Uh, yeah, the judges are a little rusty, eh? It's got to be said <laughs> as we're coming back. Uh, to beat veteran Antonio DeMarco by controversial majority decision. Eric, uh, any underdog performances or, dare we say it, shaky scorecards that stand out to you from that? Uh, yeah, well, all the underdogs fought well, and uh, and all three deserved to win, in my view. Uh, Collard, what he does ain't pretty, but... He sure beat up Kaminsky. It's not too often yeah. a fighter's face is that swollen after a six-rounder. I mean, it's obvious that Kaminsky isn't an elite prospect, let's say that. But still, excellent win for Collard. Uh, he won at least four of the six rounds. Patricia Morse-Jarman's scorecard that made it a split decision was really hard to figure. Um, Morse-Jarman had a better scorecard in the Planea-Greer fight. She had it 97-91. Uh, I thought Tim Cheatham's 96-92 was probably the most accurate. And then, surprisingly, it was veteran Dave Moretti, who's usually very reliable. He had it 94-94, which means he found six rounds to give Greer, which I just don't get. And Greer... You know, I enjoy the pillow gimmick. Uh, that's a little something that sets him apart. Uh, but, you know, he had two close calls uh, in, in terms of uh, fights going to the scorecards in his previous couple of fights before this. So I think it's safe to say we know what his level is now. Right. Um, but at, at least in those two fights, we got the right winner. I don't think we got the right winner in the Santian DeMarco fight. And I should put in a disclaimer that, I was watching closely, but not scoring closely. There is a difference. Um, so I don't have my own personal scorecard here. But, man, DeMarco fought his ass off and I thought did enough to win or at least get a draw. Uh, that's how Dave Moretti had it, a draw. But uh, Tim Cheatham had it 96-94 for Santian. And in an all-time shocker, Steve Weisfeld had it 96-94 for Santian. Uh, any knowledgeable fight fan will tell you that Weisfeld is the closest thing there is to an infallible judge. He's been Mr. Reliable for more than 20 years. So it does make me wonder if I rewatched the fight and scored it carefully, would I see something different? Maybe. Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel terrible for DeMarco. He's 34 years old. He'd lost five of seven coming in. He turned back the clock and really seemed to be the boss in the ring. This might have been his last chance to turn things around and earn another payday or another title shot. I thought he deserved better, but, you know, it's, it's just a strange thing. You know, you got Steve Weisfeld, who's usually so good that it leaves me unsure of whether to trust my own eyes or exactly. not. You know, if it was any other judge... I'd be here on the podcast telling you confidently that DeMarco deserved to win. Instead, I'm left to dance around, you know, not saying anything too definitive unless I decide to watch the fight again, which, um, let's be honest, I haven't finished everything on Netflix yet, so uh, so I won't be making time to rewatch this fight. The only way that I can cling to the worldview that I possess is to assume that the rest of us are wrong. I can I can <laughs> handle the alternative <laughs> it just it just shatters everything every the foundations of which everything else is built it's that 
when all else fails, there's Steve Weisfeld, and we can right. always trust. And if we take that away, poop. <laughs> well, you don't want to know what Steve Weisfeld thinks of the moon landing. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. As far as I know, Steve Weisfeld believes in the moon landing. I suspect uh, so. Right. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, we saved uh, the best fighter who competed on ESPN this past week for last. As on Saturday night from Mexico City, Emmanuel Navarrete ended a 119-day layoff, which is nothing at all for most boxers. But for Navarrete, that's like being <laughs> on the shelf for two years. He returned to action and scored an easy sixth-round TKO over 500 fighter Uriel Lopez, dropping Lopez a couple of times with body shots. This was the ultimate example of a paid sparring session. Navarrete was just shaking loose in there, never looked troubled at all. There's not a whole lot to say about the fight, but if you have any analysis, Kieran, go for it. Uh, and uh, if you don't have any analysis, I'll, I'll throw a more interesting line of questioning your way. Uh, Navarrete can fight at either 122 or 126 pounds, it seems. At one weight or the other, what's your personal dream matchup for him right now? Yeah, we could probably sort of skip past that fight. Like you said, it was a sparring session. Um, look, I, I, I love Emmanuel Navarrete, not just because he is, as you, as you mentioned, super active in the sense that he fights a lot, but that he's pretty active when he's fighting. Um, right. He, you know, he, he walks forward, he throws a ton of punches, but he isn't just one of these crazy, just keep throwing punches for the sheer sake of it kind of guys. You know, he, he can work behind a very, very busy jab, which is one of the things he did on, on, on Saturday night. I, I think he's fun to watch. But... His opposition, since he beat up Isaac Dogbay twice in a row, hasn't been great, to put it mildly. So, yes, we've seen a lot of him, um, but it is it is time to take it up a notch. So Bob Arum uh, mentioned Jesse Magdaleno as a possibility, which is, I think, a perfectly good fight once Magdaleno's recovered from the attempted testicular manslaughter that he endured the other <laughs> night. Um, uh, and, and I think that would be a good indication of whether Navarrete is very good or whether he just happened to have Dog Bay's number and has since been looking good against overmatched opponents, um, which, to be fair, is a question we don't know the answer to yet. Um, so I would very much like to see that. Um, now, if he were to establish against Magdaleno that, yes, he is indeed that good, then at 122, if he were to stay there, I'd love to see him up against my man Murajan Akhmadaliev. Um mm. That would be a close quarters action fight, and Akhmadali would really have to really work to, to overcome some reach disadvantages there. But difficult to make um, because of different, different networks, different promoters, and so forth. 26, you know, I'd be fascinated to see him against would be Gary Russell Jr. Mm. Um, total contrast in styles. Could he possibly impose himself against Russell, or would Russell just be too slick, or would he tie him in knots? And, um, but again, also not very easily makeable. What is makeable at 26, if it happens soon before the putative opponent moves up to 130, which he might, is Shakur Stevenson. And I think Stevenson is probably ready now for that kind of opposition. Um, you know, he, he has a title belt for what that is worth. Uh, obviously, who he fought the the other day was just a complete washout. I think he's ready to fight this kind of guy. I think it would tell us a great deal about both men. Yeah, uh, I, I like all the names that, uh, that that you threw out there. It's thinking about this question made me realize just how much depth there is uh, at 122 and 126. I have a couple of additional names I'll throw out. Uh, if Leo Santa Cruz can still make 126, then that's a really, really fun yeah. fight and probably a, a very even and competitive one. Um, at 122, I certainly wouldn't say no to Navarrete versus Naoya and Um that, that that could be a good one. Uh, there are a lot of options. And, and knowing how busy Navarrete likes to be, I can't see why he can't, uh, right. you know, fight uh, Leo Santa Cruz in July and in Oui in August and maybe Shakur Stevens in September, <laughs> Gary Russell in October. Uh, all the, the the irony of a Navarrete Russell matchup would would just be delightful. <laughs> the the once a year guy versus the once a month guy. I'm down for that. There you go. Uh, all right. So following one three fight card week uh, with another top rank and ESPN have uh, more fights coming uh, this week. They have the following main events lined up for the week ahead. Junior bantamweights Andrew Maloney versus Joshua Franco on Tuesday is the headliner. Uh, more Maloney on Thursday as uh, his twin brother bantamweight Jason Maloney takes on Leonardo Baez. And on Saturday, top 130-pounder Miguel Bachelt returns to action against Eliezer Valenzuela. Clearly, these are not major fights, but they're fights. They're live sports coming into our homes. Are these shows anything more than that, Kieran? Anything excite you about any of these bouts? 
for me, it's an opportunity to check out the Maloney brothers. Um, they're twins from Australia. Andrew's 21-0 with 14 KOs. Uh, he's got some decent wins against the likes of Miguel Gonzalez and Luis Concepcion. Uh, his brother's 20-1 and with 17 KOs, and his only loss came against Emmanuel Rodriguez, who was then splattered by the aforementioned Naoya uh, in no way. Um, so I'm kind of curious to see what they're like, uh, see what they've got. Um, and I'm always happy to see Miguel Burchell. He's one of my favorites. I, I, I just really like Miguel Burchell as a fighter, and I like interviewing him. Um, this is a nothing fight for him, uh, and he should dispense with Valenzuela fairly comfortably. Um, what I do want to see now, we, it feels like for years now, you and I have been talking on podcasts about big fight opportunities for Miguel Burchell and we're still really waiting for those big fight opportunities. Uh, He's still quite young. He's still in his twenties, but I really want to see him start to get those opportunities now before, uh, well, while he's still seemingly close to the peak of his career. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody, everybody uh, coming out of the pandemic, uh, you know, a a soft touch makes perfect sense, but hopefully, hopefully he's looking to step it up uh, after this one, assuming he gets by Valenzuela. Indeed so. All right. Now, looking ahead to next month, uh, two more of these ESPN fights have been reported. On July 9th, Jarrell Big Baby Miller headlines, reportedly against Jerry Forrest, a familiar face to Showbox viewers who most notably uh, was in the ring not too long ago with Jermaine Franklin. Um, As for Big Baby, I love (laughs) Baby, right? But... Uh, it has been a little more than a year, I think maybe 14 months, since he failed not one, not two, but three drug tests while preparing to face Anthony Joshua. He hasn't fought since November 2018. So it will have been, what, 20 months or more right. since he last fought uh, by the time he squares off against Forrest. Maybe that was a consideration. And the Nevada State Athletic Commission agreed to give him a license. But... Is that long enough? I mean, look, nowadays is a year or so between scheduled fights any kind of punishment at all? I mean, yeah, if you're Emmanuel Navarrete, yes. <laughs> right. But anyone else, no. Look, again, I love Big Baby. I love Big Baby. He's one of my very favorite boxers to talk to uh, and to be around. Uh, I find him very enjoyable. I think he's a good guy. But this wasn't even his first offense. I don't know, Eric. This doesn't quite feel right to me. Yeah, it's... Uh... I'll feel I'll feel semi icky uh, when when he enters the ring, but you know I'll watch. <laughs> and watch indeed. Yeah. Uh, after that, on July twenty first, a pretty good fight in the bubble at MGM Grand. Oscar Valdez against Jason Velez. Uh, on paper, this probably feels like the best one they've done yet. Would you say that this qualifies as the first big fight on the U.S. schedule? Well, not quite. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with the not quite there, but but it is closer than probably anything else we've seen so far. Uh, we saw Velez on Showtime last time out. It was uh, at the show I attended in Allentown. He lost really close to Jaime Arboleda in a good fight. Mm. Uh, he's a solid veteran, never been stopped. All his losses were close except against Jojo Diaz and Ryan Garcia. And this might actually be a close competitive fight because as talented as Valdez is, he often finds a way to yeah. make it not easy on himself. Uh, so it's a good fight. It's it's almost a big fight, but but not quite. It just has a little too clear a delineation between right. A side and B side. Uh, and and Valdez, you know, he's not Canelo. He's not such a big star that every time he fights, and it's, it's an event or anything like yeah. that. So I'd say. Yeah, good fight, not quite the first big fight back. So uh, I mentioned uh, Ryan Garcia there just a moment ago. One fight that was theoretically going to be on the schedule for July was Ryan Garcia headlining Golden Boy Promotions' return on DAZN on July 4th. But King Rai reportedly turned it down, wasn't happy with the financial offer, and so Golden Boy will instead return in late July with a Virgil Ortiz fight. This is not the first sign of trouble between Oscar De La Hoya and Ryan Garcia. Is it time to set an over-under on the end of the Garcia-Golden Boy relationship, Kieran? Yeah, and I mean, look, the important thing to remember here, of course, is that none of this is taking place in a vacuum. Ryan Garcia is Robin to Canelo Alvarez is Batman here. Yeah. And those two are joined at the hip. Uh, and they their nemesis right now is Golden Boy. Uh Neither of these guys, the over-under is whenever they can get out of their contract, either when the contract either expires or when there's some, they figure it's worth buying themselves out. Um, this is a 
deeply loveless marriage yes right now and everyone is in it for the kids or specifically the contract actually and the dollars um soon as everyone can get out of it well golden boy would obviously love to stay in it garcia and alvarez are out of there as soon as they possibly can i assume that the only question right now is that they are figuring out where to go next and and when and you know what they can get away with in the meantime um it has fallen apart very very quickly and uh golden boy had put a lot into both of these guys and uh yeah, they won't be thrilled to see that this is just falling apart the way it is. Yeah, I mean, we have we have three generations of boxing heartthrobs here. And uh, I remember <laughs> yes. our, our friend Brian Campbell. Now I'm blanking on whether he was interviewing Oscar or he was interviewing Garcia. I can't remember. He was interviewing one of them and he listed those three guys. And he said, if the three of you walk into a club, who's walking out with the hottest girl? Um, so uh, let's, uh, you know, let's let's start some rumors here and say that this is all falling apart because because uh, all, all of these guys are competing for the same women. Sure. <laughs> it would be fun. It would be a fun <laughs> uh, a fun reason for, for all the problems. But uh, yeah, okay. All right. Probably no truth to that. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. Finally, uh, we spoke a bit last week about uh, this two-fight Fury Joshua proposal. Um, but we got more news this week about the hurdles uh, these two fighters will have to clear first. Uh, as we talked about with Carl Froch. First up for AJ will be a mandatory against Kubrat Pulev. But now on top of that, and I think Farhad might have mentioned this briefly last week, Alexander Usyk is now insisting he wants his mandatory shot at Joshua before Joshua fights Fury. Gillian White is threatening to sue to get his mandatory at Fury. Uh, we expressed like the appropriate levels of skepticism last week about this Fury-Joshua plan anyway. Uh, does this week's news make it all seem even more unlikely? I guess a little, but, uh, you know, we, we, we thought it was unlikely to go entirely according to plan anyway it's certainly possible that that white and Usyk are both just trying to maximize their step aside payouts um but maybe not especially in the case of Usyk. i suspect he thinks he has a better chance of beating joshua than of beating fury and he wants to get his crack at joshua's belt before fury has a chance to become the undisputed champ um and look with covid we just don't know how soon any of these fights can happen. Right. I think it's a long shot that we actually see two Fury Joshua fights in 2021, as they've claimed will be the case. You know, it's it's a fun thing to talk about, and it certainly raises the stakes of all their interim fights. Uh, but they each have at least one interim fight coming, quite possibly two apiece. A lot can go wrong. I'm not booking my travel to Saudi Arabia for that one just yet. And, and yes, I, I, I pulled a, a semi-frotch there, dropping in a Saudi Arabia just to rile you up right before we go. <laughs> oh, and we've run out of time. <laughs> Darn. We know there's one thing I'm not afraid to get into a good rant about. It's that. And unfortunately, we're going to have plenty of opportunities, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. But for now... That will do it for another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, our thanks again to Carl Froch for joining us, and our thanks also to Zoom and its time-limited platform. <laughs> uh, we will be back next week as boxing continues its slow return to life. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well.